The following podcast contains explicit language. One definition of explicit language is stated clearly and in detail, leaving no room for confusion or doubt. That's why we use those words. Welcome to episode 297 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Today on the show, we have an interview, about a half hour long interview with uh, Nathan Lowry of Service to School. We also have an excuse of the week. We have a lesson about how Logic Games is a test of reading comprehension. And we have a whole bunch of stuff in the mailbag. Ben, anything uh, you want to talk about at the top of the show? Um, no, the main thing is just people need to take the time they need to get the score they want to go to law school for free. We say it over and over, but please don't pay for law school. (laughs) That's Ben Olson, by the way. He is a co-founder of LSAT Demon with me. I am Nathan Fox. Uh, welcome to Thinking LSAT. This is going to air on Monday, May 10th. Upcoming events include, let's see, well, the June uh, LSAT is coming up first week, uh, sorry, second week, it looks like, of June. Saturday, June 12th is the beginning of the LSAT uh, testing week. I think we still don't know exactly. Oh, no, no, no. these are open now. Um, August LSAT registration is open. So you can go ahead and I, I think I read that this week. Did you read that this week, Ben? I, I didn't read it, but nah, I hope I didn't fuck that up. Anyway, Saturday, it's going to be very soon. Yeah. Way. Saturday, August 14 is scheduled to be the week of the August LSAT. So I believe that the registration for that is already open. Um, if you're taking the test in June or August, or really, if you have your eye on any upcoming LSAT, I really would love it if you would join me Thursdays at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. I'm doing um, a study group. It's a weekly recurring meeting on Zoom. It's completely free. Uh, Go to lsatdemon.com and sign up for a free account and register. Um, Basically, what you're going to get is a weekly check-in uh, on your progress and hopefully you'll join us in a commitment that we have made to study for the LSAT a little bit every single day. Um, everybody in that room is on board with this idea that they're going to just chip away at it and do a little bit every day. Um, so hopefully join that, uh, study group and I will see you in class. All right on to the show. So our guest today is Nathan Lowry of Service to School. Um, Nathan, what's exactly your title there? And can you tell us a little bit about this organization? Yeah, definitely. So I'm the co-director right now for JD Operations. So I work on the JD side of the house with a YLS 2.0 Paul Zeb. And so overall, Service to School is a national nonprofit that focuses on helping veterans attain higher education. So we've got an undergraduate constituent as well as a graduate side that has MBA, JD, and then other graduate programs as well. Um, So overall, we provide both some test prep in conjunction with our partners, so with LSAT Demon in the future, and then as well as Manhattan Prep. Um, Really the bread and butter though is focusing on advice in terms of resume prep, personal statement prep, networking, and then interviews. And we do that by using ambassadors so other veterans who've gone through the system already and applied and usually are at schools 
where prospective applicants are applying. Cool. Um, how long have you been with this organization? How long has the organization been around? So since 2011, I believe, is when it was founded um, by Anna Ivey, so an admissions consultant and former UChicago uh, JD Law Admissions Officer, and I believe she's the Dean of Admissions as well. Um, and then a individual, Tim Sia from Stanford GSB, um, as well as a couple of other veterans. So since 2011, the focus again was primarily undergraduate, but has shifted to graduate programs as cool. well. Cool. And you said you're the director, co-director of the JD program? How many people do you have in your JD, or do you, do you count them as in the program? Uh, yeah, so so it does tend to fluctuate a little bit. Um, we generally have over 100 ambassadors at a time and around 300 applicants per cycle. So I guess you could say that those are the, the totals overall. Um, the ambassador levels tend to fluctuate. You know, when students leave law school, sometimes they don't have time. So we'll have a constant influx in and out. So they're, they're ambassadors while they're in law school. Yeah, so some are. Um, some will start out, obviously 1L is very tough in terms of a time commitment, but usually a lot of the applicants, once they get into a school, will become ambassadors the next year. And you're usually looking at one to two applicants working with an ambassador at a time. We also have ambassadors who have since left school, but uh, still help out as well. Gotcha. Do the ambassadors do outreach to undergrad as well? Because I mean, you know, like there's not really law school applicants at law school. So what, where, what do the ambassadors do or how do they connect to applicants? Oh, so that comes through our pipeline. You're just saying in terms of, so applicants, so prospective veterans who are getting ready to apply to law school will reach out to service the school directly. Um, and then that's a huge part of what myself and Paul, my co-director do is so we serve as the link point from the ambassadors to the applicants. So we'll do pairing between applicants with similar LSAT scores and similar goals in terms of schools and pair them with the ambassadors. Gotcha. That's interesting. Okay. So um, tell me a little bit more about that. Why do you pair applicants by LSAT score? Well, I, I think it's more of a range. It's not, you know, direct, but generally we see people who are applying to similar schools have similar LSAT scores. So if we have, you know, a T14 applicant, almost all T14 applications who wants to go to HLS or YLS, we will try and pick an ambassador for them that has gotten into that school because we assume, um, you know, that obviously they did something right along the way and hopefully can provide the advice that you would need to get into that school. I see. Okay. And then, so what do you do then at the lower levels? Um, so we're still working through that. Generally, we have a 158 plus requirement on the LSAT to sign up with services school. We have been a bit flexible with that, but but really the hard number um, is 150. So we advise applicants to keep on um, conducting their, their LSAT prep if they haven't gotten you know over the mid 150s level. Interesting, uh, why? Well, I mean, so, so again, that's part of the reason we've been a little bit flexible with it in terms of 150 plus, but but we feel like for the students to be, you know, making the commitment, spending all the money on applications, um, using if they have GI Bill money or, or other money, it's going to be tougher for them to, you know, get into the, the top schools, which we do believe, you know, I'm saying like T100 plus, which, which provide opportunities for them in terms of employment. Now, it really differs by the applicant, though. You've got some some applicants who have a very regional focus and they say, hey, I want to practice here. Um, and I think in that case, you can be a little bit more flexible, whereas 
some students will go in with the goal of, hey, I really want to have all the opportunities in the world and be able to practice anywhere nationally. And then we're telling them, hey, well, realistically, to do that, you kind of have to do better on the LSAT. Um, I think one thing you see with veteran applications, though, is that their experience can outweigh the LSAT sometimes as well. Tell me more about that. Well, I think that the experience that a lot of veterans have, um, especially you know coming out of Afghanistan and Iraq now, we, we still have a fair number of veterans who've been to combat zones and then deployed and had pretty big responsibilities overseas. So I really do believe admissions officers take that into account. Um, particularly, some of the T14 schools have made that very clear. We've got a program called VetLink that actually links up some of the schools, so like Harvard, Yale, and Northwestern are partners, and will provide additional touch points with service to school applicants, whether it's information sessions virtually or in person. So you mean these schools are like specifically interested in these kinds of veterans, willing to do extra stuff to try to recruit these kinds of veterans? Yes, yes, definitely. Um, I think it's it's that way across much of the T14, but I think specifically, you know, our VetLink partners have made it very clear that they're very interested. Um, and then we have the same thing on the undergrad side of the house. It's a little bit more expansive for undergrad just because the program has been around longer. So I think there's 20 plus VetLink undergrad schools right now. We only have three for the JD side, but we're hoping to expand that as well. Part of the reason why the schools might be so interested in veteran applicants is that they might have the school already paid for by the federal government. Yeah, I, I think that is also true as well. I mean, you get so for the yellow ribbon program, there are matching funds that are provided. So so I definitely think that 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 is an aspect as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's for sure not the only reason, right? I've mm -hmm. I've worked now in my 15 year LSAT career, I've worked with hundreds of veterans. And I, I have to say that a large proportion of my hardest working students mm -hmm. were veterans or active duty. But I mean, just like there's there's this a, a, a kind of a work ethic and a stick to itiveness there. Uh, there's also <laughs> there's a little bit less of like the uh, oh life is so hard. I'm studying for the LSAT. Yeah, it's, we, it's so taxing. We we definitely like to aspire to that and and hopefully to to fill those qualities. But yeah, I mean I think that there is something to be said for hey if you're on a ten month deployment working twenty hours a day sometimes nonstop. I think I think you have a different tolerance of pressure in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that, like you just said, I think admissions committees tend to value that. It's not just pressure, you know, it's like the time commitment, you know, even if it is mundane and not pressure, because, because to be honest, if you if you feel pr pressure while you're doing LSAT prep, you're not doing it right. I mean, you really should be relaxed and calm and just kind of carefully doing your work and figuring it out. But it, it does take weeks or months or in some cases a year or more for people. And it's it's a it's a sacrifice. You know, it's like, well, I'm choosing this over going to the bar with my buddies. I'm choosing this over binging yet another Netflix series. And I, I guess I've just seen now so many veteran applicants be 
they've made sacrifices in the past. They're used to this. I don't know. Does any of that ring true to you? No, that, that, that definitely makes sense. And then I think in terms of what you said, being methodical, going through the process, putting in the time, I think that's also a huge part of you know military training generally, especially when you're talking some of the more specialized specialties in the military, whether it's intelligence, um, learning different types of software, even being a sniper, there's very distinct things in terms of what you do, how you prepare for everything. And it might seem a little bit rote at times, but it's very, very important to have that attention to detail and make sure you hit every single wicket constantly to ensure that you're able to execute at the end of the day. Well, I mean, yeah, you know, don't want to make too much of the analogy, but if if you were going to go to war, uh, like you're going to be a sniper, you're going to be deployed in a combat situation and you need to get good at all of the LSAT logic games in order to be successful in a actual combat. It's like a no brainer that you're going to do all 360, whatever logic games back and mm-hmm. backward and forward to where you're just the true master of all of your practice. Anything you even have that you're able to practice on, you're going to fully master that before you go put yourself into a life and death type of a situation. Definitely. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. You know, we see we see students, um, civilians who, you know, they think it's some great achievement that they've. Oh, well, I've done I've done 20 sections worth of games or I've done 30 sections worth of games. And it's like, well, but wait a second, there's 90 sections of games that you could do. So you've done like a quarter or maybe a third of the practice that you could do. And they they're already expecting to have the results. You know, they just want they well, why am I not perfect yet? And it's like, well, because you've only done one third of the practice that's available to you to do. And I I just I don't know, I tend, I think, to get a lot less of that from our our veteran students. Mm. They take me at my word when I say, hey, you want to make sure you're good at the games? Do all the games. And they're like, got it on it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and just and get to work. And like three months later, they're done. Yeah. I, and they I, don't. I that's that's definitely something that's definitely ingrained in the military. I mean, that the preparation, like you said, and then also in some ways responding to authority, being told, hey, this is the guy who knows what he's talking about. So if you want to do well, you listen to him. And I think that's definitely ingrained in the military as well. <laughs> I mean, that's interesting, too. Maybe I just like it when people don't argue with me. But they, they, they yeah, they, they, they tend to recognize, oh, yeah, this is the guy who scored 179 15 years ago and then has taught LSAT nonstop since then. I guess I'll listen to his advice. <laughs> it's funny. It seems it's, like a good decision. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it is always shocking when people want to you know, think they know better. Hmm. Maybe you do. Probably you don't. Um, huh. All right. So uh, anyway, to reset, Nathan Lowry is co-director of the uh, JD program at Service to School, which is an organization. Uh, can how say it again? How would you like? What's your tagline? Elevator pitch for service to school. So, national nonprofit that helps veterans attain higher education, and that occurs both on the undergrad side of the house as well as graduate schools with JD, MBA, and other graduate applications. 
Right. So the fact that you're the co-director of the JD program, did, do I infer that you went to law school yourself? No. So I'm actually starting law school next year. Um, so oh, I, boy. I deferred last year. I started HLS this next year. I spent about five and a half years in the Marines as a ground intelligence officer before that. Um, so we, we rotate out the role of JD co-director. So previous to me, Carl Min, uh, HLS graduate, had, had been the co-director. And so we're on our third iteration now of different directors. Got it. Okay, cool. So starting Harvard uh, this fall, how do you feel about that? I'm excited to get started because I deferred last year too. So once I get out of the Marine Corps, I did my applications, was fortunate enough to get into HLS, planning on starting, then COVID obviously hit. Um, and everything was going online. So I went ahead and deferred, which was nice because it really did give me an opportunity to work a full year with service to school. And then I work also at, at a law firm now. Okay. Um, where's the firm? What kind of firm? Uh, it's just in Rutland, Vermont. It's a pretty small firm, about uh, 15 attorneys, all purpose. I do a little bit of work in litigation and then some real estate work as well. It's called Facey Gossip McPhee. I see. Um, moving to Cambridge in the next couple months? Yeah, yeah. So I'll be moving up on August 1st. We'll sign the lease and we'll go ahead and get started. I believe student orientation starts in late August. You're going to be in Cambridge? Yeah. Nice. Or, or just outside. Might be in, might be in Somerville. Um, looking in some, into some options now. I lived in Somerville for a while. It's nice. Oh, did you? Nice. Yeah, for good things. Yeah. Nice. Cool. Um, well, good luck with uh, Harvard. Are you going to be able to keep doing any work with the firm at all while you're in school? Um, not with the firm. Or with service to school? Yes, yes. Very much with service to school. Um, I know 1L will obviously be tough juggling things, but but the plan is to keep me on in, in the co-director role until at least I, I graduate from HLS. Then we'll probably rotate it out. Excellent. Are you doing any kind of uh, law school prep? Um, you know, I haven't really done too much. I've done... When I deferred last year during COVID, I do, did do some mini classes, both through EDX. Um, there's a good properties and contracts class taught by Charles Freed on there. So I did that. I stay up to date you know, on lawfare, national security things, because that's what I'm interested in going into. Um, but nothing really too substantial so far. Cool. Um, well, good luck with all that. Uh, I see a whole bunch of um, tags here, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Um, these are all just connections to service to school. We'll post all of these on yeah. our show notes for this week's episode. Uh, so okay. listeners will be able to find these at uh, thinkinglsat.com. Um, Anything else you want to say about how people need to get connected to uh, service to school? Seems like a no-brainer for... Is it just veterans or is it active duty as well? So so generally we'll have active duty members phase into it. So service school in a lot of ways gets spread by, by word of mouth from other either active duty or veterans. So like friends will bring friends in. Um, but, but usually towards the end of the active duty military career, people will start reaching out to us and then apply either when they're out or someone they're in as well, knowing that their end of active service is coming up shortly. It's a no-brainer to take advantage of these programs if you uh, are a service member or former service member. Um, you're well-equipped to prepare for at least the LSAT. I mean, that's the only test I can really speak to. But the discipline and the work ethic um, that I've seen in 
former service members, you know, really positions you well to improve on this test. Not only that, but the schools know that you have that kind of work ethic and commitment and, you know, are they know that they that that these types of students are successful in their schools. So they go out and recruit these people. Not only that, but we've got Uncle Sam paying for it in a lot of cases. And that's good for you as a student. And it's also good for the schools because now they don't have to use scholarship dollars to try to recruit you. Uh, so there's tons of reasons for uh, service members or veterans to um, take advantage of this stuff. Definitely. Yeah, and it's very gratifying to have schools recognize that. Um, and it, again, very it's, it's tough to transition from the military. Definitely is. Um, finding skills that really fit what you've done in the military can be very difficult at times. So I definitely think it's appreciated you know, on all the graduate school side of the house and the JD side of the house as well to provide veterans with the opportunity to make that transition. Yeah. Well, y'all deserve the opportunities. I mean, at least in my, I can only speak for myself, but I, I, like I said, I've just seen, um, I have nothing but the highest respect for y'all. I mean, you, you guys, uh, it's like you've just got a different gear as far as tolerance for work discomfort and, <laughs> what did you say i said just discomfort and pain in some ways yeah <laughs> a little bit a little bit you know i mean like the lsac is it it shouldn't oh, sorry the lsat it should not cause you that much discomfort really but it's painful to try and fail and learn and try and fail again and learn and you know that's that circle of if you don't see immediate improvement i feel like civilians are just like oh this test is bullshit i don't you know <laughs> like they just <laughs> they want to put it aside a lot quicker than the the the, the veterans that just seem to be like oh yeah okay i i know if i keep grinding it out for another month, you know, like another month is nothing to them. I, I, I don't know. That's where does that, does that come from basic or does it come from? Yeah. I think again, a lot of it is just the combination of, of training and then also of deployments. You know, I think that there yeah. are so many dynamic situations that occur um, throughout often for us, you know, years, I, I think my training pipeline was like a year and a half. Um, and then I was probably deployed for about 20 months and you just run into all types of different situations, some of which you frankly fail at miserably with pretty high stakes. So having the, um, you know, ability to, I think, to pick yourself back up and keep on moving is really important. But I think that's something that your command is also pretty solid about. I know like our general in Afghanistan, if something went wrong, he was the first guy to be there and be like, Hey, you know, put your head down, keep on working. This isn't over yet. So so I think there's yeah. an element of that from a leadership standpoint as well. Do you start to see the benefits of the training? I'm sure you start to see it in yourself where you can feel like, oh, I had no idea what I was doing a year and a half ago, but now I can respond to these situations. Definitely. But yeah. what I really wanted to know is if you start to see it in the other people that you were training with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would definitely say so. Um, I think both in our, in our courses, so for like, 
for example, the basic school in the Marine Corps, you start out at a very rudimentary level where you're leading fire team attacks, which is four people. Um, and by the end, you're looking at, you know, company attacks or platoon attacks where you're leading, you know, 10 to 10 to 20 times as many people. And then same thing, I think, with deployments. Um, I remember when we got on the ground in Afghanistan, the very first month was just pure chaos. Like we had, we were taking over for a unit that had been in place for about eight to nine months. Um, and frankly, we were just trying to figure it out. And then by month eight, you know, when you're conducting airstrikes and working with, you know, partnered forces, I think it got so smooth in terms of what we were able to do. So, so definitely, I think you do see that across the board, both in other people and then in yourself as well. I can just imagine that you, you remember what an idiot you were with on the first day of basic, you know, you look over to this guy and you're like, Oh my God. But then a year and a half later, you see him leading this platoon (laughs) operation. Well, well, definitely. I mean, I felt like the edit too on the first day. (laughs) If you, yeah. I mean, if you don't know who the idiot is, it's, it's you. Um, I think if you (laughs) recognize that you are, exactly. I think that is probably a little bit more, more indicative of what I faced. Definitely the first couple days of the basic school. I think I I was that idiot. So (laughs) (laughs) awesome. Um, Nathan Lowry is co-director of the JD program at Service to School. There are going to be links throughout our show notes on thinkinglsat.com if you would like to get connected to the organization. Uh, Any final words, Nate, before we let you go? No, I just really appreciate you all having us on and and having the opportunity to talk about Service to School. Really do appreciate it. I'm looking forward to uh, working with you guys in the future. I think that there's a lot of opportunity there with uh, LSAT Demon. And, um, you know, again, I've got nothing but good things to say about David and all of our other uh, veteran students that we've had. So um, this seems like a fruitful partnership going forward. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks so much for your time. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Nathan. Okay. Last week's lesson. This is a feature that we started last week, Ben, uh, where I basically go through my weekly email lesson with you um, to let you know or to see what you think of it. But uh, the headline (laughs) of last week's email newsletter is Logic Games is a test of reading comprehension. Do you have any uh, reaction to that message right off the bat? No, I actually agree with this 100%. I know I had some hesitations about your <laughs> last week's lesson, but uh, I was just talking in class last night about how the fundamental skill tested throughout the LSAT. I mean, everybody thinks that each section is so different, but when you dig down into its core, they're basically giving you written rules just in different formats, asking you to read those rules and understand them, and then derive things that must be true from them. That's it. Yep. So what I have here is a little example. Um, If you would like to read this whole lesson, you can go to thinkinglsat.com slash demon, and you can subscribe to our newsletter. Every Thursday, we've been sending out this this weekly uh, email newsletter. It's a lesson, basically, in your email box every week. Again, that's thinkinglsat.com slash demon if you want to sign up. But uh, I just, I thought I I had a brain teaser at the uh, top of the thing. And it's just an example of how what they're really testing is reading comprehension. So why don't you read the uh, 
first of I've got two rules and I want you to like compare and contrast the two. So go ahead, take it away. Sure. So the first rule, um, so you want me to skip this main point part, right? And then just jump into these yeah. two rules. Mm-hmm. Read yeah. the two okay. rules. So rule number one says, if the red clown gets out of the clown car before the blue clown. Okay. So we have a bunch of clowns getting out of a car. And if the red one gets out before the blue one, which one of the following must be true? Okay. So what has to follow if that's the case? How would you answer that question? I mean, what would you do on a question that said, if the red clown gets out of the clown car before the blue clown, which one of the following must be true? What What are you thinking there? Yeah, so the very first thing I would do is I would, um, well, if I'd created worlds, which may not be the case in this kind of question, it depends if it was purely like relational rules in the original setup. But anyways, I would look at my setup, whatever that is, and I would determine what must happen if the red clown got out of the car before the blue clown. And sometimes that would lead you to some obvious must be true idea that is the you know lead you right to the answer sometimes there are several things that must be true and you're just going through the answers looking for the one they decided to give you but yeah i am definitely predicting what must happen given this if clause Okay, great. So if you had made worlds, you go look at your worlds where the red clown is out before the blue clown. If you hadn't made worlds, then you're probably going to make a new diagram. You're going to consider, okay, how does this impact the game when the red clown gets out of the blue clown? Then what happens? And you might have to make a new uh, diagram if you had not made worlds. How about this next rule? Okay. You want to read the whole thing first? Yeah. Um, Unless the red clown gets out of the car after the blue clown oh sorry out of the clown car after the blue clown okay uh so unless this is actually saying the same thing the the first one said if the red clown gets out of the car before the blue clown and this one's saying unless the red clown gets out after the blue clown um in other words if it gets out before because there's no other option there's no middle ground right this sounds like a just a regular ordering game. Yeah, it's they're getting out in a one sequence, yeah, right? Exactly. It's either got to be before or after. Yep. Okay. So since this is saying unless it gets out after, in other words, if it gets out before, each of the following could be false, except <laughs> okay, each of the following could be false. That means the four wrong answers are things that don't necessarily have to be true. And you're looking for the exception. You're looking for the thing that must be true. So you've just written the same question twice. Yes. And I asked people, you know, which of these questions is harder and why? And uh, many people thought the first question was easy. And the second question was, if not impossible, uh, some of them were just like, well, the first one I got, but the second one, I have no idea. Yep. So, yeah, they're struggling to translate what the unless clause is saying and what the could be false except clause is saying. <laughs> you threw both of them at yeah. them. Yeah. So, <laughs> Merry Christmas. Yeah. Well, I was trying to make a point, which is logic games is a test of reading comprehension. When they say, unless the red clown gets out of the clown car after the blue clown, unless means if not. So, if the red clown doesn't get out after the blue clown, well, they're going to only get out in one order. So if it's not getting out after the blue clown, then it has to be getting out before the blue clown. 
oh, wait a second. So now the first half of that sentence is exactly the same. The first half of that question is exactly the same. And then the, the remainder of it, each of the following could be false except, yeah, Ben, you just said, okay, so that means there's four that could be false, which means there's one that must be true. Oh, so what you're saying is if the red clown gets out after, uh, sorry, before the blue clown, which one of the following must be true? So those are two identical questions uh, using just an entirely different set of words. And I mean, the reason why I thought this was a perfectly... Um, allowable question to ask is because they sometimes do that on the LSAT. I have seen examples where they literally are asking the exact same question two times in a row using just different words. So logic games is uh, like the rest of the test. Logic games is a test of reading comprehension. Yeah. Okay, cool. I get Ben Olson's stamp of approval on my yeah. lesson of the week. hundred percent. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Alrighty. Uh, again, you can sign up for our weekly email lesson. That's at uh, thinkinglsat.com slash demon. Ready for the excuse of the week? This ties in, by the way, to our guest, uh, John Yin Chung, that we had on the show last week. But uh, why don't you go ahead and tackle this one? Okay. So excuse of the week, quote, I'm not good at numbers. <laughs> All right. Student missed a sufficient assumption question with a passage saying X's price went down while Y's price went up. So Y must be more expensive. Oof. Yeah, the thing about this question and all the questions really on the LSAT is that the math they're testing is pretty basic. Um, if you have a price, <laughs> if X is, let's make this a little bit more concrete, right? If the Tesla's price, if the Tesla's price went down, while the um, Toyota's price went up, it could still be the case that the Tesla is more expensive than the Toyota, even though <laughs> Tesla's price went down and Toyota's price went up. Oh, but so, I'm not good at numbers. <laughs> <laughs> well, you better be good at these numbers or look elsewhere. I, I mean, lawyers, they have to understand what is going on on a basic level. Yeah. And, you know, last week on the show, we had John Yin talking about how getting your taxes filed is important for immigration law. Yeah. And it, it's like, there's a certain type of LSAT student that really makes me nervous. The ones who are, who are, you know, I hate math and it's okay. You don't have to love math, but if you respond to an argument like X's price went down and Y's price went up, therefore, uh, Y must be more expensive than X. If you respond to that with a Oh, I'm not good at numbers. Oh, that's math. I don't do I don't do math. It's a lazy excuse for not figuring out an issue that a junior high kid, literally a junior high kid could figure out. You got four kids, Ben. If you started from the oldest and worked your way down, at what point do you think they would uh <laughs> fail to answer that question correctly? Well, that's a good question because sometimes um, I ask them questions and they clearly cannot see the answer and it shocks me. 
But then there are other times where we're talking about some math stuff and they're like, oh yeah, well that would mean this. And I'm like, what? Like you understand <laughs> that? So I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty confident, especially if we replace the X and Y with like known entities. Or not even a known it. entity though, right? Like, so if you said to them um, last year, uh, you know, I guess X's and Y's can be a little bit intimidating because it seems like algebra, but what if I yeah. gave it a name, you know, like what if I said um, the Xavier brand of car <laughs> went down in price last year while the Yolanda brand of car Dude, went up? Those are the same names I had in my head. We must be brainwashed. <laughs> well, Xavier and Yolanda. Yeah, those have yeah. been used on the LSAT before. But if you said, yeah. you know, the, the Xavier brand went down in yeah. price and the Yolanda brand went up in price, therefore the Yolanda brand must be more expensive I just yeah. got to think that smart junior high kids are going to be like, well, wait a second. It depends what price they were to begin with. Yeah. Well, my son, my youngest is in second grade and I, I wouldn't be surprised if he just got that in a second. Yeah. So I think I, w I was thinking about what's going on here as you were talking. And I do know that there are a lot of people who, um, you know, they get, they get burned by math in school somehow and then it's like they they kind of shut down. Right. I think any anything that feels mathy, they instantly say like they put up a wall. They're like, oh, I can't do that. And like you said, it's it's an excuse, right? This is excuse of the week. Um, and it's unfortunate because it's like, hey, I'm sorry, I don't know where that idea got put in your head. If it's your fault or someone else's fault, but it doesn't really matter. As long as you always put up that wall, you'll never have the the chance to exercise your math muscle. And this is a really basic math idea. It's not even math. It doesn't even require you to do any calculations. It's just common sense, you know? And so I think the reason why this is a good excuse of the week is that people just have to stop throwing up that wall. You're preventing yourself from seeing things that are just really basically common sense. Um, yeah, you know, this is you could you could say this falls into like testing your idea of relative, right? Relative claims or things. Yeah, things are more expensive or less expensive, and are you gonna just throw up a wall for all of those sorts of things? Because that's well, all this is. Also, what are you gonna do in legal practice? I mean, when I talk to you know, there's there's contexts where I I always go back to immigration law because I know you know I have. Cole Black, my immigration law buddy. But, you know, there's times where she's going to make a case that this person is economically necessary for this company or what, you know, that like this person brings uh, extra value and that's why this person should qualify for a work visa. And it's like she sometimes has to do a little bit of basic math for that. Like she's had to sort of research and learn about cryptocurrency or, She's had to compare, you know, it's like there's if you work in family law, there's times where you're going to have to do a little bit of accounting. Oh, I can't actually now that you're talking about it, I can't think of an, an area of law that does not require some basic math. Think about it. You get divorced, you're splitting up assets. You got to be able to like calculate some of these things. And some of it's going to be present value of future stuff. If you are negotiating a, 
a deal between companies, you have to be able to do some basic math. Um, if an employee is taking time off and needs to figure out, calculate how many days they can take off, that requires some basic math. I mean, what area of the law is not going to be touched by addition and subtraction? Yeah. Well, and it's not just the math thing also, because people just use math as an, they like, it's a catch all for like, if taxes come up or let's say stocks and bonds come up, dividends come up, you know, it's like, they just, they, they lump this into like, oh, that's that, that's, that's for other, my brain doesn't work like that. Yeah. Well, then you're not going to be a very good lawyer if you can't sort those issues out for your client. I mean lawyers are presumed to be able to learn anything. Yep. And you know, there's going to be times you're, you're going to be surprised, but you're going to run across a tax or accounting or finance, or you're going to run across those issues more like every day you're going to run across those issues if you start actually really practicing law. So it just sets my teeth on edge when I hear people just go like, Ooh, yeah, no, I don't know anything. Ah, boy dividends ah no i can't yeah it's like well you better hang in there long enough to learn about oh profit what's profit i don't know about but revenue and expenses oh you know and they just bounce off everything that's even tangentially related to economics but it's like uh law is about money like nine (laughs) times out of (laughs) ten and you're just gonna just decide you don't understand any of those issues i it ain't going to work out for you. Yep. Okay. Um, that's excuse of the week. You can email help at thinkinglsat.com or hit us up on social at thinkinglsat if you would like to propose an excuse of the week. Maybe you heard uh, your study partner uh, make some excuse or um, maybe you've caught yourself making some excuse for not getting a question right. Uh, you can submit that to excuse of the week so we can skewer it on the show. Okay, ready to dive into the mailbag? Let's do it. All right, why don't you read this first one? Okay, this is from Vera. Um, Oh, yeah, that's nice. She was emailing us this week. Cool. Subject line from 170 to 178 made possible by LSAT Demon. All right. I just got my score for the April 2021 LSAT test, and it was 178. I wanted to thank the LSAT Demon team for the amazing things they are doing for the LSAT test takers like me. (laughs) She keeps saying LSAT test, which the T in LSAT stands for test. So you don't need that. But anyway, um, this is a very nice email. I shouldn't be criticizing. (laughs) Yeah, it is one of our (laughs) gripes with LSAC themselves. Uh, The organization that makes the test still does this silly thing. But anyways, it it was an unbelievable... unbelievable result for me as i am not a native english speaker oh there you go nathan <laughs> she's wow. not a native english speaker i i thought i maxed out my potential when i studied for 12 hours a day did two practice tests every day and for four weeks oh sorry for four weeks and got a 170 on my own wow um okay that's a lot of work for context, my diagnostic test was in the high 150s. In my first real LSAT test, I got a score in the low 160s. LSAT Demon unlocked the extra eight points I now have under my belt. Truly thank you, LSAT Demon, so much. Um, okay. 
I feel like Vera said something else like in another email about how the Elsa demon kind of clued her into the idea of doing less, um, less yeah. is more. But in any case, I mean, I would say all these, <laughs> all these, uh, what would you say? Students who seem to have connections outside the United States. I don't know where she is coming from or how long she's been in the States, but they work their asses off. <laughs> uh, well, okay. I mean, why might that be? Well, it could be because uh, Americans are rich and spoiled and have therefore become lazy. I mean, you know, America... we the United States has been the richest, most powerful country in the world now for boy coming up on a hundred years. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, it, it, when people come here from other places, they're generally coming here because they see the United States as this amazing land of opportunity. Um, and they tend to work their asses off to get it. But many Americans just don't, quite have that work ethic instilled in them yeah um that's what happens you know just kind of fat and lazy here in the u.s and uh so yeah but i i will say that we have the experience of frequently people will arrive uh with they've done a ton of work but they haven't quite seen the results they were really looking for yeah and then we have a way of just unlocking that, right? Where it's like, oh, you've been studying for 12 hours a day. Stop that. You've been, you know, that's great <laughs> that you've done that much work, but yeah. not around here. You're not. Yeah. Uh, you've been doing two practice tests every day for four weeks. Holy shit. Okay. Stop We're doing that. Two to four a month <laughs> tops. Yeah. And right. One a week, not two a day. Um, okay. You're doing too many tests. And then what we're going to, but, but all that hard work is not, for nothing yeah you know it's like and, and people like they read the power score bibles for example they've like drilled the shit out of the power score bibles but it never really clicks for them yeah and then it's not just me or you ben but it's all of our teachers at lsat demon we're able to say oh yeah okay so you've got you know that a necessary assumption question is a thing right yeah but and you could recognize a necessary assumption question and you can recognize a sufficient assumption question and you have all these very technical ideas about like well on a necessary assumption question i'm supposed to negate the correct answer and the correct answer when negated will destroy the you know and it's like okay all right but you're not wrong, but we're just going to speak to you about it in a bit of a more straightforward, common sense manner. And then you just see that light bulb go on for people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Vera went from the high 150s to 170 by herself. It sounds like from brute force. Uh, and then we were fairly quickly able to unlock another eight points for her which boy the difference between 170 and 178 um it's not nothing nope. 170 is going to be below the 25th percentile at uh the harvards yales and stanford's of the world but 178 is going to be above the 75th percentile at those same schools so uh it's possible that vera just unlocked the door to the big big leagues there yeah nice work vera 
Yeah. Thank you, Vera. All right. Here's another uh, message it says, dear Ben and Nathan, you can call me E on the show if I make it. Yep. You made it to the, to the big time E. Um, <laughs> on my first timed prep test, I scored a 167 and was super optimistic about breaking into the 170s. Over the next few months, I did two full length timed tests per week. So not per day like Vera did, but uh, two per week, including blind review and game drilling. On five of the last seven prep tests, I completed, uh, that's 22 in total. Wait, what? Oh, but on five of the last seven, my blind review scores, I don't give a shit. Yeah. About Do you care, Ben? I have never once said, tell me your blind review score. I don't care what you got on a second chance through with unlimited time. The, I would never. <laughs> the only time I care about it is when someone says my only issue is time. And then it's like, okay, fine. Go take a test without time and see how you do. <laughs> right. <laughs> to yeah. teach you that there's more to this test than just timing. But anyways. This idea that a that a score though on it, like you're, you're doing this on every test. Like what? This sounds terribly inefficient. What a waste of time to be like fully blind reviewing every test. single test, all the way, the whole test, doing the whole test untimed after you've done it timed. Anyway, my blind review scores began to go to 170 plus. See, that's what's shocking to me there too, because it's like <laughs> you got a 167 on a timed prep test. I would expect your blind review scores, if you're actually going to track them, to be 177. high 170s, 180, right? Um, right. Like you're... I'm confused by these numbers. Like, oh, you just well, barely got above 170. Like that means you're barely eking out a couple more points. Ben, uh, it's 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 a um unjustifiably small sample anyway. Look at this math. It's cherry picked on mm -hmm. 5 out of the last 7, my blind review scores began to go to 170 plus. Well, wait a second. That's only 5 out of 7. And it so two so of them were below 170, 170 and five of them are like maybe 170, 171, 172. Yeah, it doesn't even mean anything. It's it's not enough data to do any kind of right. It's just a cherry picked. It's totally meaningless <laughs> anyway. But I found my actual prep test scores bouncing around to the mid and upper 160s with no recognizable trend. But you're trying to find trends. I'm not, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying 22 tests is nothing, but it's not enough that you can then like start to parse out little tease out bits of, of data and trends and shit. And anyway, you're asking the wrong damn question. The right question is this one logical reasoning question right here. Why is the answer B and not D? You know, people look for trends in the data instead of getting down on like ground level and actually asking the question that's going to make the difference, which is, why did I pick this wrong answer? What's wrong with it? How do I avoid that next time? Why didn't I pick the right answer? What's right about it? How do I avoid making that mistake next time? And all these numbers have nothing to do with it. You need to confront your own mortality in a way, you know, it's like, hey, this is a question that I don't understand. Um, yeah. Anyway, I mean, to, 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 to double down on that, just yeah. keep in mind, your score is the result of your success on each individual question. And it's like, 
people keep focusing on the score as opposed to on the individual questions that actually cause that score to be what it is. You're focusing on the wrong. Yeah. <laughs> You're focusing on the result, not the cause. They look at problems. the 40,000 foot view of their, of their, their total score. Yeah. As if we can do, I can't do shit with that. I don't nothing. know. I, there's nothing. <laughs> this is not actionable information in the slightest as a teacher. Uh, yeah. I just got well, an email the other day that said, I, I'm scoring in the mid one sixties. Um, what can you do for me? It's like, <laughs> what does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> no, then all we can do is go, well, we've helped thousands of students move from the one sixties into the one seventies. So I guess we might be able to help you into the one seventies. But like, if you're looking for specific actionable, actionable, like actual real help, yeah. I can't do anything with these numbers. Yeah. You know, and then, so that's the 40,000 foot view, right? Sometimes they cruise down to 20,000 feet and then they go like, well, I've recognized that I really struggle with, uh, 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 I, I, I'm bad at role questions um, and necessary assumption. And even that is like, okay, can we land the airplane, please? Can we get on the ground and talk about <laughs> yeah. a specific actual question? Because this overview of like, I'm bad at these four different types of logical reasoning questions. It's like, yeah, you're not that good at logical reasoning. That's because you haven't asked the right questions yet. Fine. Give me a flaw question that you messed up and let's talk about what your thinking was <laughs> and how it was wrong. Yeah. Anyway, I can see where he's going with this. You know, it's like, well, and then I took the official test and it wasn't as good as I wanted. Yep. I scored a 162 on the April LSAT flex. That's not that far out of your, I mean, you're talking about blind review, which is unlimited time and you're having trouble breaking into the 170s. So then a 162 on a time test is not surprising in the slightest. Yep. You've Right now, e, you've told me like almost nothing. Other than oh. you're working hard. This next sentence is concerning. Granted, I was rusty on games before going into the test. Why Wait, on what? earth were you rusty on <laughs> games? You took 22 tests. That means you took at least two full-length tests a week. That's eight games. Were you... I What? <laughs> well, that's not enough. I mean, that 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 might be... That could be enough for some people, but... You just you just acknowledged that you weren't good enough at the games. People don't get into the one seventies without basically being perfect on the games. I mean, well, you it's gotta... a, it's just like confusing, right? Like if you weren't good at it, why weren't you studying it? Like there's all this time. Why did you, you sit for on... the official test when you were yeah. self-described rusty on games? It's like you, oh well, yeah. granted. Uh, gra granted, I went into the marathon 15 pounds overweight, but I, you know, I still I hadn't been to working the on the, the bike portion of the triathlon, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's a good, actually here. triathlon is perfect these days now that it's equally weighted, yeah, uh, equally three weighted. different sections. Yeah. It's, oh yeah. Well, my bike was rusty, but I still <laughs> thought I'd do just fine. <laughs> Literally rusty. So, um, but here's, I think the problem uh, e is spending too much time on blind review in an untimed context and two game drilling. You, you see what's going on there is that E was doing games over and over and over again that he or she had already done and got the, like this 
weird sense of like success. You doing a test untimed and you're doing the same games over and over again. You're, oh, you're I got it. Like oh yeah. It, I got yeah. this one. Yeah. Now, yeah. now that I like it, it took me 15 minutes to make that inference, but oh yeah, I see it now. That makes cool. Sense. Yeah. Got it. Let's go sit why, for the why official test. Why can't I do test. that on test day? Yeah. <laughs> because it's a game you've never seen before. Yep. Hmm. I wonder. Um, E continues and says, uh, granted, I was rusty on games going into the test, but nonetheless, I feel like I followed all of the prep golden rules and should have made more progress during the time I studied. Please help. Best E. Do you I'm think so- E followed all the prep golden rules, Ben? No. E had some misunderstandings. I hope this email, or I'm sorry, this show wasn't too harsh on you, E, but we're telling you where you're messing up, and hopefully that just changes your study behavior and leads to success. I don't see why you couldn't score in the 170s given that you started with a 167, you got a 162. You're you're in the prime spot to push into the 170s. But let me be clear about something. Mm-hmm. Let me be clear. People don't get lucky and score in the 170s. The people who score in the 170s have done the work and their practice test record indicates that they are capable of scoring in the 170s on timed tests, not on blind review, unlimited time. I don't care about that. I care how you've done on timed tests. And the people who score in the 170s reliably score perfectly on the logic games. If you don't expect to score perfectly on the logic games on your official LSAT, you're probably not going to score in the 97th or 98th or 99th percentile on that test. Logic games is the one section where people master it. And they do, you know, boy, you've done 22 tests. That's great. But we've got 90 of these sections of games to work with. And your competitors, many of them have done every single one of those logic games that was ever exist uh, that ever was released. Some of your competitors have done every single one of those logic games multiple times. And, you know, you just you've drilled games so much that you then expect, oh, yeah, in 35 minutes, I'm going to finish the games and I'm going to feel confident that I have answered all of the questions correctly. And like, I don't know how people expect to score in the 170s if they don't do that. What do you think? I mean, it, like I agree. you can I agree. You squeak into the 170s with shaky games or you could go in with shaky games hoping to get a, a, a section that works for you. Right. Like I'm sure sometimes you finish, that, sometimes you don't. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there are people out there who crush reading comp and LR and they always get minus zero, minus one, and then they can get minus two or three on the games. But it's so rare in part because each of the sections is testing the same thing. Did you understand what was said? And can you figure out what must be true given what was said? And the logic games is the most direct form of that test, right? There's there's no room for interpretation. Right. <laughs> in there's an objectively that... correct answer and four objectively wrong answers on every question on the lo- yeah. on every logic game that has ever existed. Yeah it's, you know, you just, you have to just sort it out. So the people who can score perfectly on reading comp, God, you, you should be able to 
with practice score perfectly on the games as well. But I mean, yeah. I, I do want to double down on this idea that if you're if you're expecting a score in the 170s, you you need to expect to score perfect on the logic games. If not, you're just you're leaving points on the table anyway, right? Like that person who can get minus zero, minus one on reading comp and LR. Yeah. Well, good. Then go score a 178 like Vera. <laughs> the way you're going to do that, though, is by making sure that your games are perfect. Yeah. And it's just a matter of time. You know, you just you need to do games every day for however long it takes until you start scoring consistently perfect sections in time. I think that E probably got her advice from some other prep companies because well of course because this blind blind we don't teach this whole blind review, review the entire damn test yeah blind review scores and scoring it we don't do that and game yeah. drilling we've talked about repeating games but not to the extent that other companies do like there's diminishing returns every time you redo a game and if the game went well and you did it quickly it's like okay let's move on um so or if you're going to try it again, try it again in an, in an entirely different way, like experiment, yeah. you know, if you, you did well, but you didn't make worlds. Okay. Try to make worlds or you did well, but you did make worlds. Okay. Try it without worlds or try making worlds in a completely different way. Or as the demon does it for you, <laughs> if you didn't do well on a game, it will give it to you again two weeks later or, or even longer. But it's been long enough that it's like, okay, did you really learn from your review last time? Let's see, you know? And people waste time with all this analysis doing blind, blind review and then getting a score and then comparing all of your scores and calculating five out of the last seven of my whatever and looking for trends. And it's like, no, you could just drill. If you had just gone into the demon and just drilled, then the demon would be like, oh yeah, hi, welcome back. Here's a game that you yeah. need to do. And you don't have to yep. think about it. You just do your best on one challenge after another w without burning so many calories or wasting so much time on all of this analysis. Anyway, thank you, E, for yeah, writing in. You, you want to sure. tackle this next one? Hi, Ben and Nathan. Hope you both are well. And thanks for everything you do with the show and the demon. You're welcome, S. I've been studying consistently since January and took the April LSAT, my first attempt. My practice test average going into the test was 173, and I felt pretty comfortable with the test. I took about 20 full-timed practice tests prior to April and reviewed all of them thoroughly. Okay, I got my score back today, 164. Obviously disappointing, but schools only care about your highest score, so I'm gonna sign. So I'm signing up for June, just to make myself feel better. I took a full practice test this morning and scored nine points higher. My issue is I'm struggling to figure out what went wrong. The test was non-disclosed, which is frustrating, and I know I've heard you talk about how it doesn't matter whether a test is disclosed but I'm having a difficult time understanding how I could score so much lower than my average. The average was 173. Um, it sounds like S made, I mean, most likely S made the mistake that so many test day 
test takers make, which is to try to do everything perfectly, which means they either go too fast or they go too slow, right? They're trying to go too fast by trying to finish everything or they go too slow because they're trying to not miss a single thing and they triple check when they don't need to triple check. Yeah, that's my first hypothesis as well. I have, and then I have another whole rant to go on. But my first hypothesis is you did something different on the official test than you did on your practice tests. What was it? Was it at a different time of day? Were you in a different location? Did you do something differently strategically? Did you leave the clock on instead of turning the clock off? Did you check your watch, which you shouldn't be doing? Did you... You know, yeah. Did you triple check wrong answer choices and talk yourself into things that, you know, you never would have picked on a practice test because you do your practice tests more casually? Or was it the reverse of that? Did you swing for the fences and try to get a 180, which means you have to finish the test? And so maybe you rushed through it and made a bunch of silly mistakes. But you, I think, asked, did something different, whatever it was, you probably did. Uh, to the extent that this is real, you did something different on the day of your official test. So you got to start treating your practice tests like official tests, and you got to treat your official test like a practice test, right? It's always just another practice test. You're going to do your best on it, but it's just another practice test. It's aligned with the rant that I was going on with E just a second ago. Look at this email. Look at it carefully, Ben, because I think people have these illusions. They they create illusions for themselves with the numbers. Yeah, I, I think I see what you're talking about. Can I take a guess? Sure. My practice test average going into the test. Is that, I don't know if that's what you're concerned about. That's yeah. to me because it's like, okay, we're going to take a select few. How many tests well, are we talking about? Yeah, Two? I took, look, I took about, about, I took about 20 full-timed practice tests prior to April. But I think that's the total study history. Yeah. I don't think there were 20 tests averaging 173. I think there were 20 tests from day one. And then what happened was S said, oh, well, the last seven of, hey, five out of the last seven of my practice tests are averaging 173. I'm ready to go. <laughs> it's like, yeah, okay. I mean, maybe that justifies sitting for an official test, but you've got a pretty wide range of outcomes that are possible here. And sometimes that's going to work out for the better, sometimes you're going to get the upside of that variance, which is great. And you walk away with a 176 and you're done. P cool. But if you get the downside of that variance and you score a 164, it's just not that hard to have a, a short recent practice history in the low 170, averaging in the low 170s and then score a 164. That's not a crazy outlier. People always are like, what happened? I can't figure it out. And it's like, well, yeah. nothing. It doesn't necessarily have to mean anything. Because we're talking about a one data point in a whole range of possible outcomes. How many questions, Ben, different is it? Like compare a 171, let's say, to a, one, well, a 164. How many questions do you think that is different? Yeah, it could be it could be like 12, 10 to 12 questions maybe. On a four section test, but on a three section oh, test? Oh yeah, three section test is yeah, more like 7 to 9 or something like that. 
I think we should. Yeah. I mean, there, it's just, it, it, what it could have been S is a couple lucky guesses turn into unlucky guesses and you struggled with one game or you struggled with one reading comp passage or something. And it's just not that hard to get. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not rare at all. I guess I should say that for people yeah. to score in the one seventies to, to then report an official one sixty four, I just go, yeah. Okay. Whatever. It's the, you got unlucky. Take, take it again. Yeah. Okay. Um, hi, I'm a former demon subscriber who is now at the end of his cycle. I used the demon for six months and increased my score from a 135 diagnostic to a 161. <laughs> wow. wow. Yeah. That's life changing. I cannot thank y'all enough. You all guided and nurtured me from afar as I'm sure you have done with many others. <laughs> I would like to have studied longer, but that is not an option for me, unfortunately. Okay, I don't know why that is, but whatever. Yeah, we're never going to allow that, Carlos. <laughs> so, sorry, <laughs> it's just not a thing. I, I don't, I don't believe you. Why? We all have the same amount of time. Yeah, until we're dead, and you, there's, I don't know. I mean, one sixty one is okay, but here we're going to now hear about wait lists and rejections and stuff. I sent out 32 applications and I got six rejections, four wait lists and 22 acceptances. Okay. Yeah. I applied very broadly. Yes, you did. 32 applications is a lot. Um, I have a big dilemma. I want to practice in either North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, or Montana. Okay. Likes the cold weather. Apparently I am in between Minnesota ranked 22nd at about $140,000 total cost of attendance. That sounds awful. Or Mizzou ranked 67th at about $59,000 total cost of attendance. Uh, Carlos, what are you doing? Yeah, you're stuck between two bad options that you shouldn't take. I would reject both of those, Carlos. Uh, the schools I am in between are not close in rank, but they are semi-close in region. Yeah. They should both get me to where I want to go. I have tried to follow your mantra of not paying for law school, but the lack of prestige is eating at me. You're, you're focusing on the wrong problem. Well, neither of those schools are prestigious in a national sense anyway they're both regional law schools i mean maybe minnesota has a brand that carries in the midwest but nobody in i'm not sure new york or yeah. los angeles is going to be impressed by that school so uh this is scary all of a sudden it turned dark uh, Carlos continues, they should both get me where I want to go. I have tried to follow your mantra of not paying for law school, but the lack of prestige is eating at me. My career goal is to work at a mid-sized firm and then eventually become a college professor. College? What? I, I don't think I would have a shot of being a law professor, no matter how much I may want to. I feel that I worked too hard past tense. To settle for Mizzou, does that sound pretentious of me? Yes, it does. Well, not pretentious, but naive is what it sounds to me. 
Sounds like me when I was picking a law school. Yeah. Would I be making a mistake in choosing Mizzou? <laughs> Carlos is asking the completely wrong question. Carlos is just comparing Minnesota to Mizzou instead of thinking about those 20 other schools that he got into. Yeah, it's like, should I eat this rotten apple or that rotten apple? This one seems a little more rotten than the other one. <laughs> yeah. They're both rotten. Sorry. I mean, I know that you're debating between these two schools, but I wouldn't go to either one of them. If you come out of Mizzou with $59,000 of debt, which is then going to grow. It's going to be way more than that by the time yeah, interest adds up. For to, to practice law in the Midwest, I just, to me, everyone who goes there should be going for free so that the money you make is instantly profitable once yeah. you start practicing. Carlos is about to make a life-changing mistake. Um, please tell me that I am not being, please, sorry, please tell me that I am not stupid. Well, you're not stupid, Carlos, but you need to reject these offers. Yeah. These are bad offers. Uh, or better yet, it says, Carlos says, or better yet, have Nathan tell me I would be stupid for picking Minnesota because something about his tone makes things stick for me. Well, Carlos, you would be stupid for choosing Minnesota. You would also be stupid for choosing Mizzou at these prices. You're, it's a waste of money. You want to practice in a mid-law, mid-level law firm? You do not need to go to anything approaching a prestigious school. You can go to a regional school and kick ass there and practice in a mid-sized law firm. We're not talking about big law New York City here. We're talking about the Midwest. All of these schools are fine, but they're not earth-shatteringly good schools. Um, okay, and then a whole bunch of nice things about the demon, which thank you, Carlos. I'm, I'm glad that you made so much progress. But you applied but you need in, to make more. <laughs> yeah, you, Carlos, you applied in the most competitive law school cycle ever. And you, you're not even talking about the other 20 acceptances that you got. You know, like if you email us asking us for advice, but you don't tell us what the best full ride is that you got. How can we help you if we don't have like he Carlos just took all that off the table. He's like, no, I'm I I <laughs> I followed you guys this far. And now at the critical moment, I'm going to totally not follow your number one most important piece of advice. It's the tagline of the show. It's the tagline of the demon. Don't pay for law school. The burden is on you to prove otherwise. You're exactly the type of person that these law schools prey on, Carlos. You're. You're going to, you're going to borrow a life changing amount of money to go to a <clears throat> not life changingly good school. And whether you go to Minnesota or Mizzou, those are not impressive. They're not impressive to anyone who lives on either coast. It's, it's not the big leagues. It's great for local law practice, but there are many other law schools in North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, and Montana or surrounding states. And boy, without these other 20 acceptances, um, uh, Carlos did send us a link to all of 
his offers, but I, we don't have it here. I don't have the link with me because that's my copy paste error. But boy, Carlos, take the best full ride offer you have in hand. You'll thank me four years from now. Or take the test in June and August and see what you can get. What if Carlos just gets a 165? Carlos isn't signed up for June, I'm sure. So it's that ship has sailed. But yeah, Carlos, you could if you get a couple more points and on the August test and then reapply at the beginning of the next cycle, you, you could get much, much better offers. Whatever you do, do not take either one of these offers. <laughs> That's not, you're not going to be happy with that. Yeah. I don't think. Okay. Okay. Next one. Yeah. This is Zoe from Alaska. Hey guys, I just discovered your podcast and I am finding it very helpful for my application process. So thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to discuss best strategy, the best strategy for someone like me. I graduated with a 3.3 in my undergrad and I have since completed a master's with one class away from a 4.0. Okay, not sure what that means. From what I understand, however, graduate degrees do not matter. This is very stressful for me because it means that I need to earn a higher LSAT score. Well, it is what it is. I mean, Ben, the reason why grad school grades don't matter it's because is look at me. Yeah. Well, look at look at me. Okay. okay? I'm the world's you. worst student. I'm smart, but I am not hardworking. And I especially don't like people telling me what to do. And so I went to uh, my undergrad is in managerial economics from UC Davis, which is a real school and it's a real degree and they make you actually do hard shit. And I got a 2.5. Yep. Then I got a master's in journalism with a 4.0. <laughs> then I got an MBA with like close to a 4.0. And it's because in grad school, if you show up and smile, you get A's. I mean, I like, it was still me. I still didn't like being told what to do. I still had no work ethic, but I was able to just breeze through and get A's because it's just, that's what grad school is in most cases. So <laughs> schools, you know, one, not everybody has a graduate school GPA, so they can't even compare you to anybody who didn't go get a master's Two, everybody knows that the grades are so wildly inflated that yeah yeah so why are you getting zoe getting stressed out because her 4.0 doesn't count she feels like it's a waste or something or it's unfair or whatever like but... very likely it was a waste i mean yeah. that's most graduate degrees are also a waste that's true but nothing to stress out about it's just a it's a non-factor you're yes your 3.3 is the gpa that matters that's what matters, and now you have to focus on the LSAT. I have been studying for the past two months to take the LSAT in June. Okay, I would say you're you're pretty new to this process. Um, yep. Some people can study for two months. Vera studied for a month plus another eight weeks, so three months um, at least. And I cannot... St but Vera also started like, you know, 160 yeah. And then quickly got on it. Yeah. So. so anyway, Zoe says, I've been studying for the past two months to take the LSAT in June, and I cannot get my score over a 151. 
I am planning to continue studying this summer and take the LSAT again in August. I don't... I, it's May. I, I don't know where Zoe's going to be in a month, but it doesn't sound like Zoe's ready to take the June LSAT. Or do you think that Zoe should anyway? It depends on where you want to go. But I mean, I... <sighs> We were just taught, you know, Carlos, our previous emailer, made an amazing improvement from 135 all the way up to 161. But if you just showed up and said, hey, I I improved by 26 points and I got a 161, what advice do you have for me? My advice is like, you're going to apply to law school with a 161? Uh maybe don't. And I'm sorry, like, I I don't want that to come off as elitist. I'm far from elitist. My parents didn't go to college. I'm a first generation college student. I, I am worried about how many people just completely crash and burn financially and career wise by going to law school. And once 160 is like the barely barely acceptable level where i'm i'm still like uh really you're gonna start a legal career with a 161 yeah and so for zoe but zoe's a full 10 points lower at a 151 yeah uh it's like well zoe if i'm i'm cringing at carlos's 161 i you're 151 yeah i can't imagine going and sitting for the official lsat in june if your practice tests are not solidly into the 160s, at least. Best case scenario, you know, maybe you get a 155. You go four points above where you were scoring. Assume, I mean, I don't know if you continue scoring around 151 or if you go up over the next month. But even even if you do really well compared to where you are now and you get a 158, it's like, it's still, what are you going to do with that? I, I, I don't think you're ready to take the test in June. So anyway, Zoe continues, I'm planning to continue studying this summer and take the LSAT again in August. I don't have top 14 law school aspirations. I really would just like to go to a strong school on the West Coast where I can study tribal law and then return to Alaska to earn a decent paying job in that field without having to take out loans. Am I completely helpless? I realize this email sounds like a chance me email, but I'm really curious what you think the best strategies are for me and where I can focus my attention to help me get into law school. I think I thought that to- was a, I thought maybe that was a typo and that maybe that's supposed to be change me. I don't know what a chance me email is. I don't know what that is either, but I kind of interpret it as like, what are my chances of success? Maybe. I, oh, okay. I wouldn't know what a change me email is either. So I, <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that really means. I mean, okay, I just went to lsatdemon.com slash scholarships. I put in a 3.3 undergraduate GPA and a 151. Sounds like that's Zoe's current highest score. I checked the box for URM just because if Zoe wants to, Zoe's from Alaska and wants to study tribal law. So I'm inferring, I could be wrong, but I'm inferring maybe that Zoe's going to check the box for, um, underrepresented minority. Uh, I do see the possibility of getting a full tuition scholarship at the likes of Golden Gate University 
in a very nice part of San Francisco, um, just south of Market. Um, if if Zoe was really committed to, I'm not paying for law school, and if it's going to be like a 3.3 and a anything in the 150s and a check the box for URM and take a full ride at Golden Gate and then go back to Alaska and study tribal law with, it sounds like Zoe knows how to get that job or practice tribal law in Alaska. And it sounds like you've got the connections to get that job. If all you really need is any ABA school to tick the box to then go take the Alaska bar, it looks like anything in the 150s, 3.3 URM, you could potentially get that full ride to Golden Gate. But boy, there are very few green spots. <laughs> there are a total been of three green lines on the estimator. Again, lsatdemon.com slash scholarships. What are the three schools? The three schools are Golden Gate, University of Detroit Mercy, and Vermont Law School. So you've got the nation covered. But she um, doesn't want to go Midwest or East Coast. And it kind of makes sense if you're going back to Alaska. I mean, I don't know if it matters that much, but uh, you're really to, to say that you have only one option or even to say that you only have three options is not a good plan. Right. Because that's assuming they even come through with you with that sort of offer and they may not for whatever reason. So, right. Um. I, I just would say play around with the scholarship estimator. And um, I think what you're going to find is higher LSAT scores are better. Um, <laughs> they're going to give you many more options. And Zoe, at your level, I would definitely, I mean, the, number one, do not pay for law school. Don't make the mistake Carlos is about to make. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what kind of money is in tribal law, but I can't imagine that it's that much. So you want to be able to be debt free when you get out. Yeah. Which means, you know, if possible, you want a more than full tuition scholarship. Yep. Um, which, you know, if I change this 151 into a 161, then I start to see green lines starting around law schools in the in the 60s. You know, I see, okay, so now on the West Coast, we get UNLV. That's not on the coast, but sure. Nevada, Las Vegas is close enough. That's a full ride um, with a 161, 3.3 .3 URM. Um, scrolling down, scrolling down, looking for West Coast. University of New Mexico, full ride. Um Santa Clara, full ride. Okay, yeah. Seattle University, full ride. Gonzaga. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, the 3.3161 the URM is going to open many, many more doors. Um, I think I'm with Ben on the probably just don't even take it if your best is a 151. But if you start getting some high 150s and crack the door of a 160 then it might get you where you want to go, Zoe. I would also say give yourself more time. It feels to me like you've studied for two months. Totally. And you feel like, wow, I've put in all this time. Where you just need to reframe 
how you look at that time. That's actually just scratching the surface. Yep. You're just getting started. Don't beat yourself up for not making the progress you were expecting or sincerely hoping you would make by now. You just need to start focusing on learning and it will come. People get stuck on, they've made up their mind, Ben. I'm starting law school next year. I guess I better start studying for the LSAT now. And it's like, well, if today's day one, and if the best LSAT you've ever gotten is 151, then you're, you're at the beginning of your process still. And you deciding that you have to start law school next year, like Carlos did, is just a tragedy. I mean, you, you need to get the numbers where you need to get the numbers right first and then figure out when you're going to apply and when you're going to start school. By the way, uh, that just made me think of something. And it's like, why do people, you know, they decide, oh, I have to go to law school or I am going to law school this, I'm going to apply this fall because I want to start next fall. Therefore, I have to take the LSAT now. And they feel this time pressure, right? And we're always yelling about that. Hey, just take the time you need to get the best LSAT score you can get. But I think that this um, desire comes from a misunderstanding of the nature of what brings happiness. I know this is going to sound a little deep, but I think it comes from this idea that happiness comes from accomplishing things. And yes, there is satisfaction and a degree of happiness that comes from accomplishing things, but realize what's going to happen the second you start law school or get accepted to law school. You're going to be happy that you achieve that goal, but then you're going to immediately turn around and start focusing on the next problem that you're gonna to try to solve to become even more happy, which is to get through law school, right? Life is a never-ending pursuit of goals, and then you get the euphoria from accomplishing them, and then you're immediately turning to the next one. It doesn't last very long. Sustainable happiness comes from making progress towards a goal in a meaningful way, a meaningful goal too. So like, I guess what Zoe needs to focus on is her learning and getting better at the LSAT and recognizing that it, it doesn't matter whether you start law school this or not next fall or the following fall, as long as you're moving towards that and it's me, that's something that's meaningful to you in your life because this is actually something you want to do then that itself is good enough. I know that was philosophical, but I, I think there's this like sense that like, oh, I just have to do this and I need it now because I want that happiness now. You can have happiness merely by making progress toward that thing. Um, and you, you don't, I don't know. It's not like it's any better by getting it faster. No, all you're doing is rushing into the misery that is the one L year of law school. I mean, you can just decide you're not going to start until 2023 or 2024. Yeah. You can have all of the, all of the like benefit of deciding I'm starting. Oh, I'm about to be a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah. And so I'm going to start law school in 2024. Cool. You can have all of the, you know, trappings of, or like prestige wise with your friends and family and say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go to law school and down the road, but I'm, I'm not going to pay for it, you see. And so I'm going to do this, um, in a more civilized fashion. 
to to not just don't rush into anything i think is the theme of boy lots of these emails today yeah okay um let's wrap it up there you can be lsat famous uh, get on an upcoming show by emailing help at thinkinglsat.com if you have questions about the lsat demon you can email help at lsatdemon.com that was episode 297 of the thinking lsat podcast thanks all y'all for listening nice knowing you don't pay for law school